Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 54. We're recording on Saturday, May 24th, 2014. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. Good morning, Jeff. Do you think we need some catchphrases? Like, I, I, I mean, we've got a few, but like, we need like, you know, like, uh, uh, like Bugs Bunny or uh, Porky Pig. That's or all, like folks. Liz Lemon. That's a deal breaker. Yeah, I, I've got a couple. Well, it could, have how about, you been um, working on them? You, you came right out of the gate. Yeah, with this. Are you sitting about on this. some catchphrases? How about, okay, um, how about now? That's what I call jazz. That one. No? <laughs> I feel like that's taken already. Oh, okay. Um, uh, that really blanches my almonds. How about that? Can we do that nah. one? No. All right. It doesn't um, roll. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue. That really mm, turns my pages. Mm, okay. Yeah. Someone did one That's of our weird. Lis- Three thumbs. <laughs> one of our listeners, uh, you know, happily poked fun at me on Twitter recently for how frequently I say that something rings my bells. Yeah. So maybe I will go for turns my pages. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to call you Quasimodo. <laughs> your bells are always ringing. <laughs> there we go. There I it is. don't even know what to say to that. So let's get <laughs> let's into get, the news. Uh, follow up to Chipotle. You know, I don't think we've gotten as much positive feedback for one individual segment as um, our Chipotle. <laughs> The close uh, reading of Tony Morrison's yeah, Chipotle. I just, our generalized anxiety slash excitement about <laughs> Chipotle. Um, but a bit of follow up news because this is the internet and that everything must be critiqued. And actually, this one makes a lot of sense. Yeah, to me. this it's, is a sensible critique. Uh, chastised for missing Americans and Latin Americans literary promotions, which I actually had thought about a little bit at the beginning, but I was like, is Chipotle like. I mean, I know it's burritos, but like, is it Mexican food? I don't even. I mean, well, I'm, I mean I'm just not sure. Let's catch the people up in case they missed the beauty of our oh, close reading sure, yeah. last week. Um, Jonathan Safran Four, an author, made a deal with Chipotle to curate a line of cups that he is calling. Is it? curating thought cultivating cultivating thought, cultivating thought um, slightly more pretentious even now than instead of those fun little ditties you get to read about burritos on the side of your chipotle cup you can read a short piece by himself by tony morrison uh Mal- malcolm gladwell did one and um we thought this was pretty cool like you know burritos mm-hmm. literary stuff nice happy marriage uh but it it was pointed out this week that um jonathan saffron four and then chipotle i guess uh, both failed to catch uh, that they didn't have any uh, Mexican or Mexican-American or uh, Latino authors represented. So uh, the LA Times pointed it out. There have been some other pieces about, you know, kind of appropriating uh, a culture or a type of food without actually incorporating people mm-hmm. from that culture into the project. And there's plenty of people you could have gotten. I mean, it's oh, not yeah. like you're like, I can't think of anybody. I mean, we, we could. I, mean, I would love to see what Juno Diaz would do yeah. on a Chipotle <laughs> cup and right. how they would make it uh, 
ex- <laughs> like acceptable with uh, yeah, his... you get Sandra Cisneros as well, and I mean, there's a million people you could get, and it's something they sure. should have thought yeah, about. Yeah, uh, Laura Esquivel would be an, a, mm. a great or Esquivel. She wrote uh, like Water for Chocolate, mm. which is a f- book about how like the kitchen is the heart of the f- the home and the family, and so it's about food. And she is a Mexican writer and. She writes about food. It seems like that would have been an obvious yeah. choice. I mean, the other thing that's weird is like, as I was saying, is our burritos Mexican? Like, I honestly don't know. Like, is it is it are burritos like French fries? And so far as like, where it's a thing that we call French, but they're not. Like, I don't even know if a Chipotle burrito would be recognizable in Latin American countries. Mm. as like this is our food. So that's part of my own blindness. So. It's not just, and also we shouldn't lump all South American and Latin American and Caribbean, right. you know, authors and of, of that descent into one group. But that being said, uh, it wouldn't have been the worst idea in the world to get someone um, that represents some part of the southern, something south of the border, right? Uh, and it's in some fashion, and on it's board. just an, another piece of the puzzle that we've been talking about for a long time of like often when things like this get curated in publishing events and book related stuff, um, writers of color are left out and it's not an intentional Mm -hmm. exclusion, but it's very revealing that when people sit down to make their lists of guests for events or like to generate a a list of writers who could be on the side of Chipotle cups, it doesn't occur to them uh, to look for these things. And that's a problem in and of itself. Yeah. Um, other follow-up there, LA Review of Books um, did a nice review of the Chipotle pieces. I'll drop that in the show notes. Did they um, make any sense of the Toni Morrison cover? Yeah, I mean, she, the, I can't remember the name of the author who did the review, but she sort of said, not so much a parody, but a like a commentary on literary celebrity and things of that nature, which we kind of were picking up on. I didn't realize that George Saunders actually has one that's on one of the, uh, it's on the side of a bag. Oh. Um, and she said the Morrison and the Saunders were the best. I know we're shocked. Yeah, uh, big by surprise that. there. Yeah, Saunders, she's like, it's uh, about as perfect of a 338-word uh, as you can possibly imagine. Yeah, I've, um, I've come late to the George Saunders party, uh, but I have the passion of the newly converted right Yeah, now. George Saunders is. I mean, that's one, and just in terms of form, that's one I would have signed up from the beginning. Like, who can do more with less? Like, I would have thought, well, Diaz is really interesting in short spurts, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Egan, Jennifer Egan, I would have thought of, and Saunders. I Put not Cheryl Strayed, maybe not as big like of a that. name yet, but Laura Vandenberg is one of my favorite mm. short story writers, and she did a chat book last year called "There Will Be No More Good Nights Without Good Nights." Mm. Um, and some of the vignettes are a page long or even shorter, so like they could fit on the side of a Chipotle bag, and you feel the whole story, like uh, that you come into the middle of the moment that the characters are in, but in the whole page, you understand who the people are and what's been happening to them and uh, where they're going at the end of it. Really remarkable. Yeah, uh, Domingo Martinez, who wrote The Boy Kings of Texas, would have been interesting mm. on there, who, uh, memoir, short pieces. Anyway, so uh, we're getting some reports that, um, I don't think we had, we've had several people write in and tell us that their local Chipotle doesn't have have the the swag yet so um, i am going on a chipotle mission this afternoon this afternoon okay well you can um, be boots on the ground as it were burritos for the book world i'm yeah. doing it all right so let's do our first sponsor i ya is back so throughout the month of a uh, month of may the merry month of may scholastic this is teen community is sharing a simple statement i read ya so if you read young adult if you're proud of it you love it they want to hear from you so you can tweet your book recommendations at this underscore is underscore teen or and or using the I read YA hashtag, just like it sounds with a hash mark. Um, and it gets it's a way to get people talking about and celebrating and just being proud 
of young adult literature, authors, readers, books, and the community there. You can also, if you do that, you get entered in to win a bunch of YA prizes. So I'm imagining Scholastic has some of their own books, maybe some other things, maybe some signed things. Who knows? You can go check it out. So you can also follow This Is Teen on Twitter and on Tumblr. It's thisisteen.tumblr.com. Uh, you share your books. You can see what other people are reading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, YA is like, I forget sometimes. I was looking at the hashtag uh, just a few days ago to see what people, and people are using it. I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. It's been there's all over so the place. many books, like stuff I've never heard of. And that doesn't mean anything except that I try to pay relative close attention to all books. But it's such a vibrant and diverse and passionate community. Sort of, I sort of forget, like, we read these think pieces in the Times about how YA is too dark, or there's always some hand wringing about YA. But then, I can understand where that anxiety comes from because it is such a ground a groundswell, but it's such a powerful part mm-hmm. of books and reading um, that doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get the attention, even that mysteries or thrillers or romance. And to some degree that even like genre doesn't get, I still, it's like, I don't really understand it, but I think this is what Scholastic is trying to do. It's like, you're out there, there's a bunch of people reading it of all ages. You don't have to be a young adult. We know this to be true to read and enjoy this. Um, so check out the I Read YA campaign on Twitter, on Tumblr, and uh, see what people are reading and talk about what you're reading. So thanks so much to Scholastic for sponsoring the show. Okay. More follow-up. Uh, well, things are getting more interesting between Hachette and Amazon. Um, let's see. Uh, there's been a lot of thinky pieces this week. Um, the one we're going to link to in the show notes from the Times. The other one that's interesting, our, our friend Laura Hazard-Owen over at mm-hmm. GigaOM wrote, some of the other things that Amazon is doing. We talked about this last week where Amazon and Hachette seem to be, we don't really know the details of what's going on, but they're, they're engaged in some sort of contract negotiation, presumably about, I would assume, the discount prices mm-hmm. Amazon gets for fulfilling Hachette orders and probably some of the other promotional dollars that Amazon does ask many of their publishing partners to, to pay as a part of being a part of their search and recommendations and so on and so forth. So whatever it is, Hachette is not yielding to what Amazon is um, demanding. And as a le- bit of leverage, Amazon started delaying book shipments on not all, but many Hachette titles, especially new hardcovers, mm-hmm. right. two to five weeks. Right. When we, when we talked about it last week, we were even just looking up titles together mm-hmm. on the show and many of them... Um, did say will be delivered in two to five weeks, and now it's escalated. Yeah. The battle has escalated. The way that this is being spoken about also is a whole other like yeah, the rhetoric we'll get that around. So, what are the, some of the things this, that are going on now? Some that, of the things since, since we talked last week. Right. The the primary thing that's going on now is you can't pre-order forthcoming Hachette books from Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks like the categorization and options to buy some other existing books from Amazon are also being affected. And I don't know if this is intentional or if it's just an ironic... That's Kremlinology, um, like we said last time. Now now that we right. don't know what's going on, any weird little and, blurb right. looks and like so something that means something. The weirdest slash most ironic slash maybe Amazon did it on purpose piece mm. is um, the book about Amazon that I've mentioned several times on the show, The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon, which is by Brad Stone. Uh, it's a researched history of Bezos and the company, and uh, it's partially authorized. You know, Bezos gave interviews for it. Um, now is 
uh, made scarce on Amazon. It's published by Back Bay Books, which is a Hachette imprint, but it's um, interesting and certainly raising some eyebrows that a book that is somewhat critical of some of Amazon's business practices is now uh, in you know, not so easily accessible from yeah, Amazon. Some of the other things that are happening too is um, for some Hachette titles, the customers also bought mm -hmm. um, bar that usually appears below kind of the the um, vital information about a book is appearing above that vital information yeah. for the book, which is and interesting to see. Like they're kind of like trying to head you off at the pass. Right. And <laughs> I saw, um, I've seen chatter on Twitter and I read one of the pieces that I read about it, this, uh, what's going on yesterday. I said something about Amazon popping up banners that are like, try something similar at a lower price. Yeah, um, but I haven't been able to get one of those on mm. Amazon. I've been trying. Yeah, because the other thing I've seen too, and I think we'd maybe talked about this last week was, no, it happened after we talked last mm -hmm. week where I was, I sort of been using the goldfinch as a canary in the coal mine. <laughs> um, and See so what you did la there. last week, uh, yeah, that was foul. Um, <coughs> oh, we're um, done now. Keep moving. Anyway, so um, uh, I was using the goldfinch to see what was changing. And when we talked last week, it was available, it was discounted, no big deal. Then a few days later, I saw it was available immediately, but it was full price. Hmm. It was 30 bucks. Mm -hmm. And when before it was like, you know, it's classic Amazon discounting down to like $17 from the cover price. Um, so there's a lot of weird stuff going on. The other thing that's hard that, that to use the parlance of uh, Nate Silver, it's, there's a lot of noise in Amazon because they're changing things all the time on different mm -hmm. pages and they're A-B testing. So it's hard to know what is actually signal of what, what the, yeah. the, the confrontation is and what is just random like changes to am things Amazon but, is testing. And since Amazon doesn't ever really comment on yeah. what they're doing, and it says in this Times piece that um, at a meeting, a company meeting last week, Bezos said something, you know, like, we'll talk when we have something mm -hmm. to say. It just lends to endless speculation about yeah. which changes are intentional and which changes are strong arm tactics and what is just their constant A-B testing of mm -hmm. the newest developments. And um, even though this the, the uh, lack of availability on books and Amazon's restrictions are about print books. Uh, the interesting thing that this Times piece points out is that this has a lot to do really with the future of ebooks. Mm. And this is not the first time that Amazon has wrestled with publishers about ebook pricing and distribution. And they are uh, apparently trying these same tactics on um, publishers in Germany. And the chief executive for um, Bonnier, mm -hmm. I think I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, says to the Times that Amazon has confirmed to them that the delays are di directly related to ongoing negotiations between Amazon and Bunier over conditions in the electronic book market. Mm. Uh, so we haven't seen a similar statement from Hachette. All of this came out last week when Hachette um, started publicizing that they were having these issues with Amazon. I thought it was smart by Hachette to say this is what's happening. Yeah, I thought I thought it was too. And it's interesting to see how the conversation about it has changed when it happened with Macmillan several years ago and their buy buttons disappeared. You know, Amazon and Macmillan were uh, arguing about whatever mm -hmm. they were arguing about. The buy buttons for Macmillan books disappeared from Amazon. And later there was an, like <laughs> the most unapologetic apology letter ever issued by <laughs> Amazon that I remember called it a ham-fisted error. Mm. Like Amazon really came out pretending that that was a total accident, that those buttons had just disappeared and that they, you know, thought people would believe that or at least expected it not to be questioned. And it's interesting that that's not going on here. Amazon's not 
uh, denying that it's intentional. They're just not saying anything. It is interesting that they're using a different tactic than removing the buy buttons. And it lets Hachette frame the conversation, Mm -hmm. which, like, right now they have control of it. There's, like, there is a hashtag for supporting Hachette. Um, Readers are talking about, you know, making sure they're going to their indie bookstores to support Hachette authors. And there's a lot, at least in this small bookish community online, about uh, wanting to think about what's happening to the authors and and readers as a result of this. I've got just a couple of things that I've been tweeting about infrequently over the week because I've been thinking about it. And I I should say that I don't feel like I have much of a dog in this particular hunt, Amazon versus everybody else, except that I like to think that I can try to think about it with something like clarity since I Mm -hmm. don't. And a couple of things struck me. One is there is going to come a time when it's not going to be worth it for one of these publishers to strike the deal with Amazon. Like that's Amazon's MO is to like cut you until you bleed that you can deal with. And then at what point will they cut you too deeply? Like, you know, it's just not even worth doing. Like they sell a lot of books, but if you're making $0 off a lot of sales, who cares? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like, so I wonder if maybe we could be approaching some point like that. The the the, the other thing I was thinking is like, there's you another mean a point where a publisher just walks well, away. Walks from away, yeah. It's like you know what I mean. Presumably, any publisher that still works with Amazon means they make at least one penny off every sale, right? Mm-hmm, right. That there could come a point where it just makes no fiscal sense, and. I'm, people give Amazon, I think, too much credit for being business geniuses um, sometimes. And there could come a point where they really do just decide, I, I'd rather go break my arm over here than have my head cut off with you guys. So right. that's one thing. Like Maybe it'll come to point. Two other things that occurred to me. One is this is also being portrayed as the big bad Amazon against poor little Hachette, <laughs> which, I mean, to some degree that's right in terms of the sphere, but Hachette is part of a huge... French conglomerate called um, Lagardère. I, I'm so sorry, France, for butchering that. Which has it does ten billion dollars in annual sales. So this is really a giant. This is a part of a giant versus a part of a giant. Amazon's book arm versus Lagardère's book arm. So it's like mm-hmm. this isn't you know uh, Amazon versus um, Ma's books down on Main Street. You know, these are right. big corporations. Now, Hachette is the smallest, I think, in terms of annual sales of the big five publishers, but they have this huge infrastructure and financial might behind them. So there's a little bit where those who don't like Amazon will jump on it and sort of do a David Goliath kind of story, which I just want to tell the story as it is. You know, right. I don't know that it matters if you say it that way or not, but I think that's important to realize that these are giant multinational corporations fighting over one little strip of land um, that looks right. big, like a big deal in our world, and it might be a big deal for book sales in general, but Hachette's not going out of business. Because, I mean, <laughs> that's right. not really happening. It's it, it, the language is very like this is a battle. Things yeah, are escalating, and uh, that's the way that it's getting framed by the New York Times. That's the way it's getting framed by indie booksellers, by bloggers, by a lot of people in the industry. And I think it's safe to assume that these are tactics that Amazon probably deploys in a bunch of the yeah, industries sure. that Amazon has business arrangements in. We just see it when it happens in books because that's the thing that we care about. But it's not like th- this is just business. This is two big mm-hmm. companies doing business with each other and we don't have to like it. I don't think that uh, I don't think that this is serving 
customers and readers. No. Amazon talks a lot about being customer focused and that that is their top priority. And maybe they've gotten it in their heads that strong arming uh, publishers into the lowest deals so that Amazon can then sell books as even more of a loss leader and drop prices is somehow the best thing for the customer. But if people are trying to buy books from you and they can't get them for two to five weeks, that's not serving no. your customers. I'm the most bummed about what this does or really what it doesn't do for readers because not everyone lives near an indie bookstore. Not everyone lives near a great public library or has a Barnes and Noble nearby. And for some people, Amazon is the best available option. And if those customers can't get books when they want them, mm -hmm. that's crappy. Um, but, but this is like you said, it's two big, big companies mm -hmm. duking it out. Um, and, I'm really disturbed by and always disturbed by the way that it always comes around online to like telling customers that it's their job mm -hmm. to fix it. Um, this support Hachette hashtag or read Hachette or um, I, I think it's read Hachette is the hashtag going around is telling people like, you know, intentionally go into your indie bookstore this weekend and find something that's published by Hachette and buy it to support those authors mm -hmm. and support the company. And that's not reader's job. No. It's not our job um, to support a publisher or to support an author or to save a piece of the industry. Reader's job is to read the books that we want to read and, 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 not to try to like not to be told that it's our duty to save these big companies because that's not how it's going to work. Have you ever seen um an as close to objective kind of telling of Amazon's relationship to the publishing industry as can be sort of reasonably expected? I, I don't think I've ever seen one which is more I need a Vox explainer. Like you know, <laughs> like this like weirdly the view from nowhere kind of yeah, like you know because the New Yorker did um, a, a long piece, but it was very clearly like mm -hmm. big, bad Amazon. And the other side, the Amazon defenders also have their own, I don't know, maybe that's something we should write or yeah. try to figure something out. Like, Because I do think it's worth, if, if a reader does care about the politics and economics of this, I think you should care about what you want to care about. And if that's right. something you want to know about, I do think it would be worth having some like this is the reality i mean some people don't know that what amazon does with books and has done from the very beginning is sell them at either a loss or break even or a very small profit as a way of getting customers right mm -hmm. um they don't use books to make money frankly amazon doesn't do many things to make a profit um at this point they they're very close to right. break even as a big company and they're just trying to get scale and at some point, they're going to do something with that scale. And no one really knows what that is. I'm not even sure Amazon really has it figured out. But they're playing a different game than Barnes & Noble, mm -hmm. than um, your local independent bookstore. Um, so, you know, you, I, I want readers to have the information to make the decision they care about. And beyond that, I don't have a dog in the, to hunt. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. And I haven't seen a good... It, a good objective description of this relationship or the history between Amazon and the publishing and no one will industry. go on the record. And, no publishers right. go on the. I mean, that's part of the problem. Is right. We don't know like, what the deals are. Like, how bad is it? We have no and, idea. And I think you're right that um, 
what you said earlier that people are more perhaps more afraid of Amazon than they really need to be but it's just this in it feels to me like it's this ingrained part of publishing they're now. Like, like the NSA like, now like, right, since you, like they could be doing anything like right, everything's like the on the table like the, if one of the like if the publisher of Random House uh, went on the record and talked about like exactly what's been happening they would be afraid of what Amazon would do to them mm -hmm. in retribution for that, that all of the random house buy buttons would disappear and then that they would lose those sales and what would happen. And so no one speaks out. Like it, it does feel kind of mafia-esque yeah. in some ways. Like, well, that's why someone needs to go, right. they need to go snitch. They need to go uh, state's right. witness. <laughs> right. We need, we need to we need make Serpico. that happen. Um, I did see this morning our good friend and colleague, Jen Northington, who's an indie bookseller, uh, was tweeting, she's J-E-N-N-I-R-L on Twitter, um, saying, you know, she that she as an indie bookseller is uh, not pleased with the way that this conversation is framed because she doesn't want, like, you know, vitriol and battle rhetoric either. Mm -hmm. um, but she just wants customers, like you were saying, to understand the relationship between Amazon and publishers and how that's different from the relationship between indie bookstores and publishers. Because um, there was another New York Times piece uh, that came out yesterday by Farad Manju, yeah, where that. he says that um, you know Amazon discounts books and indie booksellers mark them up to a huge degree, which is not the case. <laughs> indie, <laughs> indie booksellers sell books for the uh, publisher's suggested price, the price that's printed on the back of the book, or sometimes they offer discounts. And Jen had a great series of tweets that were just like, "This is these are the things that I want people just to understand, just the facts that Amazon." Uh, wants the lowest prices that they can get from publishers so that they can continue to sell books for lower and lower prices um, and drive down what readers think of as the worth of a book um, so that readers are more likely to buy those books from Amazon than to buy them from indie bookstores who have to sell them for higher prices. Because like you said, Amazon uses books as a loss leader. They're going to lose money on books, but they get you in the door to buy whatever else it is that you're going to buy at well, Amazon. And they just and have scale. Make that money. I mean, they can just hold right. a jillion books for cheap prices right. and they have cheap labor. And they just and they make have, it up They have unbelievable elsewhere. shipping deals with UPS where they pay you know but pennies on the is, dollar what normal people like, pay. This is hugely problematic also that the like the newspaper of record in america can't get it right how oh, forget about it. how know. pricing works yeah. uh so that when the conversation does bubble up past just the bookish community into a wider readership about what's happening with amazon and books it's not even accurate yeah i got i got two other things on my notes for this i'm just going to blow through them real quick uh the second thing i was thinking about is you know from a reader's point of view if you just are a uh, you know, uh, a good, um, serious reader who doesn't pay attention to publishing news, you're going to find, let's say, let's say you want to go, one of the books of being affected in pre-order is um, the Rowling's new Galbraith mm -hmm. novel, The Silkworm. You can't pre-order it. So if you're, you know, say, oh yeah, you heard it's coming out, you want to go to Amazon pre-order it and you can't do it. You're not like, damn you, Hachette. Right, you're blaming right. Amazon. I mean, that's right. one one virtue of cons uh, publishers essentially having zero consumer mm -hmm. awareness is that they're going to blame Amazon for this. So Amazon, in a way, is, is losing the public relations war. Like, they really have mm -hmm. no leg to stand on. Yeah. Even if maybe Hachette's like, I want, you know, who knows what Hachette could be demanding something unreasonable. I, I don't think that's true. But, you know, people, this erodes the confidence and experience of shopping at Amazon for some people. And right. there's, and, and, you know, maybe a salutary benefit of Hachette, like, 
you know, doing uh, something of that nature. And yeah, the other thing I want to talk about, and this one always drives me crazy, is like the talk about how Amazon is a monopoly and everyone else is, you know. Oh, please tell some truth yeah, about Yeah, just this. a couple of stats. I mean, Amazon is a huge, powerful company, and I, I don't want to denigrate that. They are the most powerful book retailer now. Um, but according to the most reliable stats, they do about 33% of American book sales. Sounds like a lot, right? Sounds like a lot. Penguin Random House, the largest of the big five publishers, does 40 to 50% of trade sales in North America. So they do more business in their part of the world than mm -hmm. Amazon does in their part of the world. So, you know, people throw around, this is what happens with Monopoly. Well, but no one is paying attention really to Penguin Random House. And so if you got Penguin Random House and one of the other publishers, they could be doing 50 to 65% of trade book sales. That's why the DOJ came down on them because you know what? Altogether, they do something like 85% of mm -hmm. trade book sales and they just can't collude. So that's just an, it's an, it's, it's not merely an unfair, it's an inaccurate say right. to say Amazon is a monopoly and all these other publishers just like the poor little woe is me fish. And, um, and by comparison, indie bookstores do like six to eight six percent. Six to eight percent of North American book sales. So that's just something else to keep in mind, especially as you're listening to this rhetoric. If you're the kind of person who listens to the show, you're probably reading a lot of this stuff. And I don't care what side you come down on, but I sure would like you to feel like you have the information to have an opinion that you're comfortable with about it. Um, well, I had one other thing. Oh, and the other, and related to that is, wake me up when it's Amazon versus PRH. That's what <laughs> I, I mean. I mean, in all fairness to Hachette, like it's an interesting story, but I don't think it's going to move the needle. Now, if Penguin Random House decided suddenly that they wanted to fight this fight, um, I mean, you that could, would be, it'd be very interesting. Like you could see a world in which Penguin Random House is like, you know what? Enough of Amazon. We're pulling all of our books. You can't buy our books. And you cripple Amazon as a bookseller because... Because That's 50% of the books people want. <laughs> right. And like suddenly Amazon isn't a viable just, option as a store. And like maybe you do it for six months and Penguin Random House, which is owned by Bertelsmann, which is another huge right. multi, multi like they could do it. Like they could hemorrhage $3 billion for a year if they wanted right. to. Right. They, they could. And sort of this kind of leads into the next story that we have yeah. on the agenda. But Penguin and Random House, like there's some speculation that the reason that they're not participating in these uh, ebook subscription services is that maybe they're developing they're rolling their own. Their own. Which maybe which they should, if frankly. You publish 50% of the books yeah. <laughs> that come out in a year, that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to try. And I would just love to see, I hope that somebody is like sitting doing Mr. Burns fingers in Random House um, planning. It, it wouldn't be, if you could do it right now, it wouldn't swinging. be a bad time to do it. Like, like hop I think on this board was, the, the train with Hachette. It was kind of like, this is kind of what publishers were going for when they launched Bookish a couple of yeah. years ago. Like they hoped to have something that was a combination of like a rolled their own Goodreads slash ebook retailer. Um, but that just did not fly. But the fact that that didn't fly doesn't mean that they couldn't make something else fly. That if it was done well... Or just, you know, like, buy, them, buy them from just, iTunes or Kobo and Barnes & Noble and your book bookseller and screw right, Amazon. But I mean, I think there's a way... I think there's a way to do it uh, that like if people who want to order Penguin and Random House print books, uh, if you couldn't get them from Amazon, you know, where Barnes and Noble, I guess, would be a good international or not international, but sort of like nationwide shipping yep. alternative. But it would be interesting to see, like, I think that we're coming up on that. I just want somebody to come out swinging and call Amazon's bluff, like, you know, tell the truth about whatever mm -hmm. it is that's going on between these two big companies, get your, your book version of witness protection mm -hmm. and 
and and just come out and say it and see what happens. Like, yeah. I feel like we need one person. Like it, and, and that's all it takes is one well, person. Well, PRH to, has the most to gain. Yeah, from doing one person it. to do it and to say like, I'm going to do this regardless of whatever the threatened consequences mm-hmm. are, and then see what the consequences actually are because there's just this kind of pervasive and you fear. should do it like this is an interest i love the thought experience like this i don't know the economics and i'm not a publishing insider i've never worked at a publisher so there could be very real reasons you couldn't do this and so on and so forth so all that caveat aside um what i would do is if i were prh i would pick i don't know some book that's coming out like let's say theoretically it was uh, harry well, potter like the- eight right yeah. and let's say you had the contract for it and there's it's going to be two years worth of hype and what if you announced that we're pulling all of our books from Amazon because they're, we think they're bad for our business and bad for books. Well, and starting, you're not going to be able to get the new Harry Potter book at Amazon. You go all these other places, anywhere but Amazon. And that just sort of like announces to the world that Amazon is no longer a place where you can get everything. Right. Yeah, like that's what know, I would do. I would well, try Random that. House has, the, I mean, every fall Random House has a big fall. But this fall, Random House has the new David Mitchell, the new Haruki. Murakami. M- Murakami. Yeah, but no one, they I have mean, the new Justin, the final book in the yeah, Justin no, Cronin passage. Four quarters like, don't make a dollar. Like you need a dollar. You need a, I don't know. Like it would need to be. The new Suzanne Collins, whatever she's like, it's something where like the mass market is paying, or the new the Dan, new Dan Brown, Brown, you know, something like that. Um, and just can see there please what be happens. a new Dan Brown? Right, I, need I know. One it's, we've already summer. had one last year, uh, and you just see what happens. Like, I don't know. You roll yeah, the I dice and would, you see was, what happens. Yeah, it's interesting that like the examples there that come to mind that would work really well are the giant kids series. And while you were tossing those off, I was sitting here thinking like, who does Random House have that's an adult, you know, an adult title. Mm. And I think it's Dan Brown. Like that's kind of the start and finish of it. Uh, Or maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe they cluster a few of them in one week. Right. Mm-hmm. And like that's today. <laughs> and then what do you do? You, buy can, a bunch of, you do your William you, Wallace speech in PR and you sort of, you know, make your stand. You buy a bunch of Google ads that get served yeah, to people who right. have been searching you for You do a big back page in the books. New York Times. Right. Um, and, and, you, and you take a run at it. And you should do it now mm-hmm. because Amazon is growing a few percentage points a year um, in how much of the American book retail market they have. And you want to do it before while you're they're not strong like yeah and just you maybe should have done this three years ago right it's kind of one of the reasons they're merging and like you know bullying is a word that gets used with amazon a lot and i do think that that is more accurate like a Mm -hmm. a bully plays on a fear that the so-called victim has of threatened consequences and i think often in those situations the the consequences won't actually come about, but bullies count on your fear to keep you in check. Uh, and that it works. Like so far, this has worked for Amazon. And so uh, if you want it to stop working, you have to call their bluff and come out and do the thing that they're threatening you uh, with consequences for if you do it. Just come out and do it. Uh, Penguin Random House is the one to, mm. you know, throw that punch. Um, let's transition to our next story. Uh, we could talk about the the <laughs> variegated uh, topography of the Amazon versus books um, uh, map all day. Um, but one company that's a couple of companies that seem to be going the other way in terms of making it attractive to work with them is uh, mm-hmm. the Scribd and Oyster, which we've talked about. Oyster, both Rogue and I use them. They've sponsored the shows. Full disclosure, we mm-hmm. both tried have tried Scribd and don't like it quite as well as Oyster, though it's I think it's still a pretty good service. Um, 
When it's got, in, Scribd is on uh, Android, Android, so yeah. if you don't have an iPhone, it's a great so option. So their subscription ebook services, Netflix for ebooks, is not a bad way of thinking about it. Um, they got their second of the big five publishers. HarperCollins was on board with both of them. And this week it was announced that Simon Schuster is getting on the train, bringing 10,000 backlist ebooks um, to both catalogs and names that we know. Like this mm-hmm. uh, backlist is important. And so far, Oyster and Scribd have been primarily backlist. But Stephen King, who is Hemingway. the most? Yeah, and Stephen King, I read, was the most searched for author on both of these services. Really? Prior, yeah, That's prior super to super interesting. Uh, prior to people being able F. to F. get Scott them. Fitzgerald, some more contemporary authors, Jennifer Weiner, um, uh, Jody Picot, the Dalai Lama's book, How to Be pa- uh, How to Be Compassionate. Is that yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's you know a lot more value, a lot more names you've heard of makes it that more attractive. Um, and oh, another way for publishers to get money out of their backlist. Right. Um, so it, the ball is rolling, and mm-hmm. the big one everyone is waiting for is is PR. Penguin Random House. And if I were them, I don't know what I what I do my own. If I, from what I've seen, publishers aren't super great at their own platform stuff. That doesn't and mean they couldn't pop out with a great one, but just the track record right. hasn't been great. The track record's not great, and I think. We, and we've talked about before that publishers overestimate the general reader's awareness of which publishers put out yes, which books yes. or the, the degree to which the general reader cares which publishers put out which books and can remember. And so if I think if Penguin Random House rolled their own, it would be interesting to see uh, – I would hope they would call it something that wasn't like the Penguin Random House ebook subscription. Yeah. Like they would, they would just need to like drop down the huge and impressive list of authors that they have and let that sell itself. But as a reader, being able to have access, like I don't want to have like Oyster for HarperCollins no, and Simon and Schuster, and have to have a subscription for something else so that I can read the Penguin Random House authors, you know, and like, I don't know, what if Macmillan and Hachette formed another one? How many of these are readers supposed to have? I feel like if you're thinking about serving readers the best and reaching readers, it makes more sense to go into the services that readers are already using and comfortable with rather than trying to get them to adopt another separate one. You know, we were talking a couple weeks ago when Amazon bought Comixology, what the other companies Mm. out there, I'm like, I don't want them to buy Oyster. Don't no. buy Oyster. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean... It's so good. It's good, but also, like, they're they're doing it right, and they're working right. with terms that publishers seem to be happy with, and, like, uh, maybe maybe yeah, this is the kind of thing that Amazon just doesn't... They don't want to do this. Maybe it's not a business they want to be right, in. Right, and this week, uh, the CEO of Simon & Schuster, Carolyn Reedy, um, said that, you know, initially Simon and Schuster was concerned about ebook subscription models and what it would do uh, to revenue, but that now, and probably thanks to the HarperCollins, yeah, they got some real numbers the they can first, show off. Yeah. Uh, they have, you know, they're seeing that HarperCollins revenue went up uh, with participation yep. in these services. They're seeing that authors like it, and uh, by all accounts, Oyster and Scribd are offering good deals. Mm-hmm. Every time a reader passes a certain point in a book, I think it's ten percent. Like I, I know on Oyster, it's ten percent. I don't know what it is mm-hmm. on Scribd, but if a reader reads ten percent or more of your book, you get paid, and you know, then you have money to pay your author for that. And so, the other uh, thing, the overhead is really low, is... right? For some, like mm-hmm. they're getting paid, but they're also not each reader 
reading 10% book doesn't cost Simon & Schuster anything because it's all Oyster files and servers and everything else right. like that. So they don't have to serve files. They don't have to do it. There's no transaction costs except, you know, what their deals with Oyster. So mm-hmm. even if they're getting paid and a lot less, their overhead is also a lot right. less. Right. There are just a ton. Uh, when this announcement came out earlier this week, I just opened up Oyster on my iPad and started scrolling through all of the new ones. And so many great authors from Simon and Schuster yeah. and like the whole Hemingway backlist. Like it's, I notoriously have not read Hemingway's <laughs> novels. And, and now I you, can read, you read a movable feast this summer. It's a great summer. You can read it in an afternoon. One of your Friday afternoons out on the lawn with a beer, read a movable feast. You can do it in three hours. <laughs> um, I, I was also thinking about this too, that probably the least happy person about this is Harper Collins, just because they had so much of the titles that they were mm-hmm. getting so many of the, the reader conversion dollars. So probably their net revenue will go down, right? Probably, but I think in, if you're... Th- I give for them the short credit term, for, for thinking... The short term. I think they're playing a longer yeah. game too. And so if you're HarperCollins, you're also glad that, you know, you took the risk of being the first one on these services, but now some of the other big players are following suit, which makes the long-term possibilities for success of these services greater, yeah. I think. Um, so I think that's all. You know, we'll see who's next. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a couple... The PRH, the Penguin Random House, will be the big the big fish. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Macmillan and Hachette sort of just... Yeah, there are already, just, like, some Macmillan titles. Yeah, and some HMH titles, too. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, now that there are two, that feels like a safe bandwagon. And then it's right. going to be the PRH watch. Like, if I'm them, maybe if I'm PRH, maybe I buy Oyster. What would I do? I don't know how much they that would be smart. Um, I know Oyster I mean, is probably is, valued at hundred million dollars now. Or something. I feel like we would have been having the same conversation if we were doing this show three or four years ago, looking at Goodreads and how Goodreads had been exploding. And it, I was like, hoping, rather I'm than, hoping that would teach them a lesson, like just right, do rather this. than right, rather than trying to make their own yeah. version of Goodreads with bookish Penguin Random House, especially if they had joined with uh, some of the other big publishers, could have bought Goodreads uh, rather than Amazon owning it. And so, right, I hope <laughs> I hope they learned their lesson now and uh, maybe they will look at this i don't know if oyster wants to sell i don't know if scribd wants to mm-hmm. sell like who knows what that would take but uh that would be a better bet in my mind than trying to make their own to compete with it yeah i mean i mean ping and Rand is owned by bertelsman which is another giant multinational, multi-billion dollar annual revenue corporation so i mean they might need their corporate part, their corporate owners to pony up the cash and do it, but mm-hmm. there's money. I mean, it's not yeah. a question of whether or not there's money in the corporate coffers. It's whether yeah, or not anyone has the will to do it. And I think we can look at other industries and see what has worked and what hasn't worked. Like we've got in music, you have iTunes where you can buy stuff. Yep. And then there's Pandora and Spotify as the big sort mm-hmm. of subscription or streaming models. Though and they apparently don't... iTunes is buying Beats, which just has its own subscription ah, service. Right. And, so like and some they of those consolidation. Right. And so like Pandora and Spotify don't work exactly the same way, but there's some overlap in features. But it's not like different record labels are trying to get people to go to their own private record label mm-hmm. subscription. You know, like I can just go to Spotify and listen to artists from any record label. And I, I think that it would be wise for publishing to take their cue from that. It's worked that way for movies. Like there's not an MGM movie streaming service and then a Columbia picture streaming service. It's all just on, you know, I think Warner brothers tried their own. 
Um, <laughs> Tried. <laughs> Netflix yeah. for comics. That's the one you need next. So that is fragmented. Like Marvel and DC both have their own, like, mm-hmm. read all you want for a fixed price, but you've got to have multiple yeah. apps and, and blah, it, blah, blah, it blah. It would be interesting for Amazon now that they own Comixology to, like, develop a subscription arm of Comixology um, where it's an all-you-can-eat kind mm-hmm. of thing. They, they are getting some comics and graphic novels in Scribd and Oyster now, too. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, all right, let's move on to, to new stories. Um, boy, we're we right, we time. Let's go dives. down to uh, something we did this week. We do a monthly poll, and we like to talk mm-hmm. about it on the show. And this month, uh, we got the results for a poll. We did this in April, right? It's usually a month lag. Mm-hmm. Um, we asked for the books that make you feel dumb. And Rebecca rolled the data as she does so well. <laughs> And we have the top 17. We do. So anything that got more than 10 votes, um, we had 463 people respond, and there were 406 unique titles. Mm -hmm. Number one, I would have guessed. Actually, you know what? I think I might have guessed the top three in some order. (laughs) Um, Number one, Ulysses by James Mm -hmm. Joyce. Number two, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And three, The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Mm -hmm. Not a surprise. I think that might have been my ballot, (laughs) actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I think maybe I put Finnegan's Wake instead of Ulysses. Yeah. I can't really remember, but something like that. So rounding out the top five, Finnegan's Wake by Joyce and then Gravity's Rainbow by Pynchon. All of those are super hard books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Infinite Jest, I think, is the easiest to read on a sentence-by-sentence level, but it's so long and so many footnotes. <laughs> and you need, like, multiple bookmarks to get through yeah. it. Finnegan's Wake, yeah. I think, is the hardest, but, like... It's also the least read of those five. I right. Would say. Yeah. There, there are some on the list that were surprising. Um, Heart of Darkness is number six. I don't know. That's. I think that's a blind spot for me. I love Heart of Darkness. Yeah, you, but you, that's um, one of those. You had a great teacher, right? I remember you talking right, about this right. before. Right. That's right. Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice is seven. Very surprised. Is number seven. You know, we didn't. I should say for the framing of the question, mm-hmm. we didn't pin down what like dumb meant, and this came about from the survey came about from when one of our writers, Swapna Krishna wrote a piece about the perils of feeling dumb while you're reading and how sometimes you feel dumb because you just don't understand what's happening in a book. Uh, You feel like you don't get it, but sometimes you understand the book and you don't understand what the big deal is Mm -hmm. about the book or why so many people love it. And we didn't want to narrowly define that um, generally because when we narrowly define questions, the answers to them defy that narrow description anyway. Uh, But so like, uh, Pride and Prejudice is on here, and if I had to guess, I would guess that it's not because people didn't understand what happens in the book, but perhaps people wondering, like, why is this book such a big deal? Yeah, I think there. I think I saw someone comment either on the post or on Facebook or Twitter or something, commenting like, Pride and Prejudice there, and it was because at first they didn't get what the big deal was, but then they realized that it's like, it's it's a, it's a existential sort of social mm-hmm. novel that has all the trappings of just being a courtship novel. So like, right. it's like, this is just about people getting married, right? Well, like, yes and no. Uh, it's not about that at all. Uh, let's see, other surprises there. I thought Lord of the Rings was weird, just because, yeah. I, I mean, it's long, but... I think maybe dumb. that's another, like, what's the yeah. big deal about this? Um, Twilight, 13. That's the one everyone commented on. Twilight right? shows up at number 13. It's a truth universally acknowledged that if you put Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey on a list, people are going to comment about oh, that man. and nothing else that's on the list. Yeah, and, you know, just sort of speculation about why this makes you feel dumb. It doesn't seem to hard, hard to understand. I haven't read it, so I, I can't really... Um, 
I can't really comment and, about the you know, style or I content think or anything. I'm interested in how that ended up there too. I think it was probably mostly snarky answers. Uh, like at least that's what the commenters uh, on the results post said. Like, oh well, it's because you feel dumber after you read it. Mm, um, okay. Well, I, I mean, maybe. Maybe. I read I read Twilight, and I have to say, like, it's not. I didn't find it to be a difficult read at all. But also, I. It did not leave me with the what's that big deal about it feeling like I have certainly read some of the big books of the moment at various times and been like, okay, I just don't understand why people love this book. I didn't love Twilight, but I could definitely understand what the appeal mm -hmm. was for the readers that were going nuts over it. There's kind of no question why that book worked. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. But okay, if you feel like it made you dumber, that's Moby fine. Moby Dick at 14. I'm surprised it wasn't higher. Me too. And I'm surprised The Great Gatsby is on here at number 16. I feel like it's that's a really straightforward... Well, I um, think one thing we learned about these polls is that the books that everyone had to read will appear for whatever reason, because just enough people have some feeling about them right. that they're just there's like an eligible well, and, voter. And maybe like, you know... Uh, my sh surprise at Heart of Darkness being up there because I loved it because I had a great teacher. A lot of these are books that are assigned in school. Yeah. And if you don't have a good experience college. reading the first time, yeah, either high school or college, you're you're going to have that feeling. Like if, if there was some disconnect between you and the book and the teacher, uh, you will be left with that, you know, feeling like you just don't get it on some level. I was surprised not to see um, Beloved mm. um, on the list. Um I was a pride. These are these are, let's see, all 20th century novels except for Pride and Prejudice. Everything. Yeah. Oh no, Melville. Um, mm -hmm. I was surprised not to see. When the like, Scarlet Letter. Oh, sorry. So three. Yeah. So three. I was surprised not to see like um, Bleak House by Dickens, or like Vanity Fair by Thackeray. Like some of these big doorstop 19th century novels that can be I difficult to get through. Those just aren't maybe just as not frequently read, you know, assigned. Maybe not. Um, anything else you're surprised in? Oh, A Brief History of Time, number eight, the only nonfiction, mm -hmm. which I yeah. didn't, wouldn't have really thought, but of course, um, I like that book, but it certainly made me feel dumb in a good was, way, in a super I good way. I was surprised that there wasn't more Proust. I think there oh. were three, three or four mentions. That's because no Proust, one's read Proust. Right, in the full data set. And the link to the full set is, uh, is in this post as well. So if you want to see all of the titles that people said had made them feel dumb for some reason or another, you can do that. But that's, yeah, that's kind of where I came down on it is there are just fewer people trying Proust yeah. in order to let Proust make them feel dumb. So we didn't see it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So that was the list there. Um, Always fast. I could look at those results for hours and look at that. <laughs> yeah, it is always interesting. Okay, let's do... You want to do a cool thing? Mm -hmm. You pick. We've got cool thing or controversial thing. What you want to do? Mm. Let's do the controversial yeah, we thing. Better. You timely. wrote about it this week. So I, I mean, did. I feel like we, um, so why don't I overview and then you can tell me what you said about it. So sure. um, this started, it's about, you may have seen this if you've been paying attention, it's about trigger warnings. And it got started because the University of California at Santa Barbara, um, some students um, were asked, were sort of, the Senate, the student Senate there was thinking about a resolution to mandate warnings for triggering content in academic settings, asking that teachers mark trigger warnings on any content on their syllabi that could elicit a reaction from students with PTSD. So one example that I think is the easiest for me to understand is let's say you've been sexually assaulted mm -hmm. and there's a book that has a, has, a, has a visceral graphic depiction of a sexual assault, like telling you that this is something to watch out for. Um, right. that's, that's, where, that's all it was asking. Right? That's, right? that's the root of the root of what's going on. And now it's been spun out into everyone's anxieties about everything. 
Right. I mean, that's sort of the... right. Yeah. It's this seems to me very simple. Like the more that we understand how trauma works, uh, traumas like sexual assault, um, which I think is the most common example that's coming up here. Um, the more we understand about the healing process for those people and, and what it's like long-term that memories and uh, that memories of that event and anxiety symptoms related to post-traumatic stress can be triggered by environmental factors. So like, this is a thing that we know that we didn't know, like when you and I were in college, mm-hmm. um, or, or when we were in high school. And now that we know it, um, academic settings are being pushed to acknowledge that and to change it. I think this is a, a actually the wording that one of the commenters on book Riot used that I really appreciate. Like this is a small kindness mm-hmm. that we can do, um, for people that doesn't cost us anything, um, to folks who have already experienced a really difficult or horrible trauma. Um, it, but it has gotten spun into so much anxiety. Um, I the, think it's, the, I'm not actually interested in the responses. I mean, in, in an intellectual way as so much that they exist in all of right. their sort of wild manifold it's, manifestations. It's, I, it's like, I'm a little bit embarrassed for I am too. book media. Actually, I'm a lot embarrassed Can you, for... You wrote about it sort of saying the things people are missing, but what what is the... You know, well, what's, so the, the, what are, what's the, uh, like the Cliff like Notes the sli- version of the reaction? Right, the Cliff Notes version of the reactions, um, the thing that prompted me to write the piece that I wrote is that it's this slippery slope argument about the future of literature. <laughs> that if we, like, capital F, capital L, um, that if we start telling students about what's in these books and allowing them to opt out of reading them or to, you know, take different courses because they don't want to uh, take the course in which the book with the graphic sexual assault scene is taught, or if teachers start feeling like they have to tailor their reading lists, then everything is going to get whitewashed and the great challenging works of literature are going to get banned from the classroom and we'll have no more intellectual And authors won't, thought, authors won't and, write books that they want right, to write because right. they're afraid of getting a trigger warning on of the book or something right like and it's like this it's just a giant bunch of terrible slippery slope arguments um and the piece that i that i wrote and this, the piece that i think is missing from this conversation is what do we really care about here like of course i care about literature mm-hmm. of course i care about books but i don't think that there's any scene in literature that is so important that it absolutely must be read by everyone mm-hmm. in order for those people to you know have good or education entire book for that matter like, right or right yeah. i don't think there's any everyone must read this to be an educated person book and i certainly don't think there's any scene or book that's so important that it outweighs another per- like an individual person an actual human's psychological health um i think and- what's happened and correct me if, if you think i'm wrong or if i'm or if i'm partially wrong but one thing that's happened is that the the phrase trigger warning has bubbled up into sort of common usage mm-hmm. as a more colloquial kind of shorthand for I don't like to watch scenes that have this in it. So I'm going to say, I wish this had a trigger warning. My example right now is I can't watch or re- I really don't want to watch movies or read books where something terrible happens to kids. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. I want to know if I'm not reading it. Like I'm not reading right. Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. I just right. I can't. You're... It's not a trigger for me, but I just don't want to do it. Right. There's, I think there's been a blurring of the definition of trigger between, uh, the, the original intent of it is something that triggers post-traumatic stress from an event like sexual assault or like being a a war veteran. And now it has, 
it, it's gotten blurred around with things that you're uncomfortable with and that make you feel squicky, yeah. like how you're not going to read stuff about um, bad things happening to kids. To kids. It's, and the other thing is people but don't this, really understand the reality of a person with PTSD having an episode. Like right. they just don't get that like that is a real thing that's mm-hmm. pathological and, and uncontrollable and very difficult to live with. Right. And, and they just don't, they don't, human, of, they, they can't sympathize or, I mean, they, of course they can't empathize if you don't have it, but they can't even right. think that maybe this is something that real people deal with in a real way that's not just about, well, I don't want to read about uh, white people. You know, but, I don't even have, know what they're afraid of. Yeah, I have two things there. Like the first is that if, if we do this with trigger warnings in classrooms, which I think that we should, then it's totally possible that some students will take advantage of that, of the existence of it. And they will use the trigger warning opt out as a way to not have to read something that they're just simply uncomfortable with. I'm fine with that in the same way that you say, like, you know, sometimes we let a guilty person go in, in favor. That's how we're just, we'd rather let guilty people go free than imprison innocent people. Right. And so if a few jerks take advantage of a rule that allows people who have real, problems and real post-traumatic stress, um, that's fine with me. And do you think those jerks that we're going to use that are going to be educated by the book anyway? I mean, like, there's some self-selecting of who's going to be open to the pleasures of the text. There's also just a a total failure to comprehend what this, what it really is to have post-traumatic stress from an experience. Um, One of the pieces that I was reacting against in my post and that is linked to in the post um, says that allowing people to, you know, opt out of reading books that contain potentially triggering material just fails to recognize how healing books could be. And like, so basically that's... The old liberal humanist nonsense, right? And it's like, you were, let's say you were raped and even though you think you don't want to read a book. Just think how of, good Lolita is going to be for you. I mean, just think right. of how or healing like, Lolita is going to be for your trauma. It's like, sure. But <laughs> I just, my eyes are rolled so far back in my head right now. Right. This is, it's just so embarrassing that this is the way that book people have come out. Book people who talk so much about how books, you know, can make us better and can help us understand each other more and can give us greater empathy, like those studies that we've been mm-hmm. passing around on the internet this year about uh, like reading literary fiction makes you more empathetic. Really? Because I just do not see that happening in our community this week. And I'm really ashamed that that's the way that it's come out and that this is the message that so many people in book media have sent to the people who have been victims of terrible trauma. Yeah, all those, is, all like, the, oh, it's God. too bad that that happened to you, but I want this book to continue being taught, so you should just suck it up because maybe it would be good for you. Like, who are we to know? I, the, the books that have healed me in some way, there's that's personal. And I would never presume that those same books would heal other people, um, especially if the content of the books that have healed me in some way contain post-traumatic stress triggers for people. There's, it's just, it's so paternalistic. It's a failure of imagination. We're supposed to be better than, than this, like thinking that the future of literature is in danger if we acknowledge other people's humanity and and the canon changes. Like, I feel like a lot of this, and maybe, you know, you as an educator also have a perspective there but the canon changes sure and the canon does. and the canon responds to what's happening in culture and this is a cultural shift that that we are undergoing we're experiencing it actively and so the books that we deem appropriate for the classroom are going to shift in response and it's not the first time that's happened i 
I'm so fired up. Yeah, I know, and rightly so. And I'm I'm fired Mm -hmm. up about it too. I think that each anyone who writes a piece that's like trigger warnings or signal a death knell for literature, they all tell me one thing about the writer, which is I don't know that much about PTSD. That should be the Mm -hmm. byline of all of them. Because I think if you know someone or know or even have thought about it or read about it at all, like this is not a joke. This is not someone sort of sitting in the room by themselves, sort of blushing and being uncomfortable. Like it is a, a. it is a reliving of the event in your mind of the mm-hmm. thing that happened to you. Like it's visceral, it's real. You can some, have sometimes distinguishing between reality and what's going on. Um, and it's a real thing. I, I would be fascinated uh, to read uh, a response by someone who has PTSD talking about mm-hmm. how these things can happen. Because I, I'm not of the camp that literature is healing and good and sort of like it is an end in itself like you know ben kingsley and schindler's list like the list is an well, aggregate good and i think it's what, powerful like, for all I, that I, means right and for good what, like, and if Ill. you if you're the victim of a sexual assault you should just skip therapy and read some books like <laughs> I, I, yeah i i don't really understand um you know because the the example i th- i thought about immediately when i was trying to think of um like read the stats from rain.org about the number mm-hmm. of women who've been sexually assaulted. Right, and it's R-A-I-N-N. And that's like org. one in three, mm-hmm. right? And then imagine a 200-person a, a um, 20th century American literature course where Lolita is on the syllabus. The stats say that there's going to be at least a dozen women in there. Um, at least, because I mean, you're yeah. 18, so there's some age things. Right, right. There's at least a dozen women there has been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. I think the humanist perspective is not to pull the lead off the syllabus, but to say, here's what's going on with this book. Right. Do with that what you know to be best for you. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth reading despite that, um, but I'm not you, you're whatever, this is what's going on. I, I just don't, I can't get myself yeah. to worked up in a position like, well, there it goes, burn down the house, the word, it's, over. Right. it's all over, boys. Or like the future of literature is doomed if we stop teaching Lolita. Right. You know, like, I think that's the... Well, like the the way that you combat a slippery slope argument is you accept what's ever right. at the bottom of the slippery yeah. slope. And uh, I said it to a commenter on Book Riot this week that, okay, like your argument is what if some great books stop being taught because of this? Okay, like there are tons of great books. Um, mm-hmm. As long as we're not actually talking about like government enforced censorship and making books completely unavailable to the people who want them, if some books fall out of favor in the classroom and and educators start using other books that can And this happens all the time. We don't teach every book that's right. ever been written. This is this is just the canon yeah. changing. Then that is fine with me. I will I will accept the bottom of that slippery slope. I will accept the bottom of the slippery slope even if it is books that I love. Mm. Um because there are plenty of great books in the world that we can use to to teach literature to people. And someone said to me, a friend that I didn't, a friend that I've known for years who had never told me um, about her experience said to me privately this week that um, she was sexually assaulted in her first year of college mm. and was an English major. Uh, and like one of the first books that they had to read in class after that had a graphics mm. scene of sexual assault in it. And she went to her advisor and asked, like, if I stay an English major, is this a thing that I'm just going to have to yeah, encounter on and on? I think that's a fair ex- and, question. Right. And her advisor said, yes, yeah. like, this is a thing that's going to come up over and over in the books that you'll read in the next four years. And so she changed her major. And, well, violence um, against women, I mean, this is something mm-hmm. we've talked about in the past. Mm-hmm. Like, it's 
it is a trope of not only cultural life in the West, but of the literary representation of life in the West. Like it's right. women get captured, they get raped, they get mm -hmm. bought and sold, they get abused emotionally and sexually. Like it is a thing in it. And right. I don't know that it shouldn't be a thing or it should be a thing. Um, but that's a reality and letting, you know, saying that's part of the canon right. and that's something that mm -hmm. goes on. And if that causes you to have uh, a visceral, you know, clinical reaction that you want to avoid, go do it. I mean, yeah, just I do have, with that what you will. And I have one, I mean, one more piece is that a few people have thrown out some stats at me, um, in response to the piece that I wrote that say like most survivors don't have PTSD. Sure, of most people don't get triggers. Sure. That's fine. But if one person does, yeah. then it's worth considering that one person's humanity. And well, that most people don't have epileptic fits from playing super Mario brothers, but many video games have a warning that says, you know, there's a lot of flashing lights and don't play this. Right. Most women won't have a miscarriage if they ride a roller coaster, but some will. So mm -hmm. we get warnings on that. And that's like, that's uh, what we're talking about. And here. like literally Every review that I read of the Dragon Tattoo movie mentioned, by the way, there's a graphic oh, rape which is, scene. That is a rough book. Like, I, yeah. we turned off the movie because it was, the, 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 the yeah, book was is, tough, but the movie was even harder mm -hmm. to deal with for me. And, and every review yeah. mentioned, you know, like the, the reviewers of that movie knew somehow this was a thing that we should tell people mm -hmm. that maybe you're not going to want to sit through this graphic rape scene for whatever reason. And so if that's a thing that happens to you when you watch depictions of sexual violence, you should know that this is there. And then, right, like what you're saying, you can take that information to make the decision that you need to make. But I, I just think that we could have done so much better by this conversation uh, over the last few weeks as a literary community um, than we've done. And I hope that it will improve that the direction we take improves and that people's people will expand their thinking yeah, beyond so beyond this hand-wringing about the future of literature these are people that people's lives and their emotional well-being psychological well-being that we're talking about triggers are a real thing it's different from taste or preference yes. or what might make you feel uncomfortable uh, and if you can't get your head around that being more important than like some book that you think is great continuing to be part of the canon, then you have more thinking to do. Yeah, let's leave it there. We got to do the sponsor. We got, I mean, <laughs> we do. We'll leave the link to show notes to us to Rebecca's piece. Um, I'll do a link in the show notes to the editorial at the at the UC Santa Barbara that sort of lays out what actually went on, and then we'll do. Um, a sponsor and some new books and get out of here. All right. Tell me about sure. the, tell me about our second sponsor. Our second sponsor is the girl in the road by Monica Byrne. It is uh, one of the big debut novels of the year. It's about Mina, who is a young woman that lives in futuristic Mumbai. Uh, she wakes up one morning with five snake bites on her chest and she doesn't know how she got them or why they're there. But she also knows that she must flee India and return to her birthplace in Ethiopia. Uh, so she goes on this Tr this place called the trail which is an energy harvesting bridge 
Hmm. That right, futuristic Mumbai uh, that spans the Arabian Sea, and she starts on foot across this forbidden bridge that has its own subculture and its own rules. And she doesn't know what's awaiting her when she gets back to her birthplace in Ethiopia, but she just knows that she has to take this journey and that it will show her along the way. Uh, And sort of on the other side of things is another young girl named Mariama who is from a different time. She's also on a quest, um, but after witnessing her mother rape, she joins a caravan of strangers across the, uh, across Saharan Africa. Um, and she meets another young woman. So we've got these three young women that are traveling. But while Mina is heading east and Mariama is heading west, uh, their fates will intertwine. Cool. Yeah, it sounds really cool. They, she's got Monica Byrne has blurbs from Neil Gaiman and John Scalzi. The book is being compared to Margaret Atwood. Uh, I keep seeing the phrase lyrical science fiction mm, come up uh, in reviews of it. And uh, 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 our friend uh, Jen Northington that I mentioned earlier in the show told me she loved it uh, and that uh, she thinks it's one of the books, like, I'm a reader who hears the words when I read, but she was like, you're going to see the movie hmm. when you read this. Um, lots of great reviews for it, and it's coming out now. Awesome. Or it is out now. So that's The Girl in the Road by Monica Byrne. Uh, quick other new book hits this week. Uh, we thank them for sponsoring the show and the new books that are out. Uh, the Last Kind Words Saloon I'm reading by, this. I'm reading by Larry living. McMurtry. I was thinking about you when, uh, when it showed up on my doorstep. Larry McMurtry, of course, is famous uh, for having written Lonesome Dove, and now he's returning to 19th century cowboy stories um, to tell about the American frontier and the travails of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. <laughs> Larry McMurtry is your Huckleberry. Man, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> that one's out now. Um, in paperback this week is The Engagements by J. Courtney Sullivan. Uh, I just love J. Courtney Sullivan. Um, her book, Maine, is also really terrific. But this is a uh, multiple perspective narrative that moves um sort of follows several people whose lives in different generations are connected by this one engagement ring. Uh, And one of the people, uh, one of the characters is based on the real life woman who came up with the Diamonds Are Forever ad campaign for De Beers. And so Courtney did a ton of research about that woman and her life. You get a little like Mad Men sort of fix uh, in here as we see her develop this campaign. And part of the book is about relationships and engagement and marriage. But another huge part of the book is also about how we came to think of diamonds as the symbol of love and marriage. And it ties back to this A Diamond is Forever campaign and this character that Courtney creates so well. It's really interesting and fun and smart and the characters are great. Um, I I really loved it. I think especially if you're looking for a great book for the summer, um, it would be hard to do better than that. Uh, And another book that was a huge debut last year and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize uh, is out in paperback this week. It is We Need New Names by No Violet Bulawayo. And it's about um, a 10-year-old girl in Zimbabwe uh, who... Uh, must escape uh, from what's happening politically in Zimbabwe at the time. And she moves to America uh, with her family. Uh, She's the writing has been compared to Juno Diaz, uh, Zadie Smith, J.M. Coetzee, uh, Coetzee, I don't know, Coetzee, uh, yeah. but tons of uh, of really excellent reviews for it last year and a lot of critical acclaim. And that one is out in paperback as well this week. So those, those are, are new books. And that's our show. Books. That is our that's show. That's our show um, about uh, our high horses. 
and our uh, our uh, opinions. That's what Which high is, horses and opinions. That's this that's, is how that's, podcasting this, this works. As always, you can find show notes at bookwrite.com slash podcast. You can find links to the stories we talked about, the books we talked about, and our great sponsors, I Read YA and The Girl on the Road by Monica Byrne. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. Always find us on Twitter. I'm at Reading Ape. She is at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. If you want to give us some feedback, tell us good, bad, um, or otherwise, you can let us know uh, by sending us an email at podcast at bookwrite.com. We're there on iTunes if you're... Uh, alone with some Saturday night looking for something to do, leave us a review. We like that. That helps new people find the show. We'll be back next week with a whole new slate of things to get pissed off about. We'll be at Book Expo next week. That's right. We'll be at BA. We'll have have some news. We'll have news. We'll have things to talk about. Um, So thank you guys so much for listening to the show. Rebecca, I will talk to you soon. Have a great week. Bye-bye.